0: Now, you got to your car today and you put the key in the ignition, or if you got a modern car, you press the button. Obviously, the the reaction you hope to happen is that the engine fires up. Now I'm not sure what's going to happen when we get electric cars because I, I have no idea. Uh, <laughs> they're probably going to have a little button you push and it sounds like an engine running because we're not going to be we're not going to be used to that. But if it doesn't happen. Obviously, you've got to take a different path. You've got to look at it from a... you got to call, do a cause and effect to figure out what's going on. You know, we try to teach our kids. You know, you've got to be careful what you say and what you do because what you do has an effect on other people and other things. It may not be today. You may find out that you do something that's going to affect you years in the, in the future. In most circumstances... Uh, you can determine how big the cause is by the power it, it results in the effect. You take a firecracker and you light it and throw it. It's got a small bit of power and a small effect. You take a hand grenade. I've never done it. I'm sure some of us here can tell us what it's like. It's got a little. It's got a little more than that. You throw it and it blows up. It's a pretty big effect. You throw a big bomb. It's, it gets bigger. So the amount of power. In the cause, results in more power being exerted in the effect. So what is the effect of the most powerful event in all of history? You know, when we think of power, we should actually think about it as the ability to make change. Power can make change. I was working yesterday on building a new garden box, and thank goodness I have power tools, because I would hate to have had to sit there and cut all that wood by hand. I have tools that do that for me. They have power. And it affected change in the wood, and ultimately I get this garden box that I I think is pretty good. But what did the most amazing, most powerful event in all of history, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, what effect did that have? Now, there's a plethora of modern stories and you, you look at people who have been affected by the Holy Spirit who have, have lived lives of complete and utter abandon of having anything to do with God and something happens in their life and it changes them so much and they're completely in the other direction. We, we can hear those stories and read those stories. But what about those who were around during the time of Christ. You know, on, on Thursday and Friday, all this week, we've been talking about the fact that, you know, on, on, on Monday, Thursday, we did a foot washing and we did, you know, we, we, we understood that, you know, this was a very difficult time for Jesus as it's his last meal with his disciples. And that had a cause on him that it was just kind of heavy. And we go into Friday and the Good Friday service. We went through the stations of the cross and we see the effect that the, the cruelty of man had on Christ. But what did did Sunday, what did the resurrection do to people in his time? Now we have the stories of the apostles, we can read those. And how these common backwards men from Galilee, fishermen and tax collectors, and just normal run-of-the-mill Joes, what effect it had on them. They ultimately spread the word of God throughout Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth, at least the earth at their time. That they knew of. And while the stories are amazing, I mean you would expect that to happen, wouldn't you? I mean these were these were eleven now, eleven guys who had spent three years with Jesus and they were affected anyways by him, so ultimately when the when they get the Holy Spirit, it changes them so much that they now are no longer afraid and they're out and they're sharing the gospel. They experience the Holy Spirit in ways that we could only imagine. For today, Easter, when we celebrate the resurrection, I want to zero in on one person. One person who was highly, probably, I think, the most dramatically affected by the resurrected Christ. And that was a man known as Saul of Tarsus. Now, Saul's life was changed in a moment. And what it did, it resulted in a multitude of people throughout history, greater than anyone could count, repenting and believing in Jesus Christ as Messiah. So let me give you a little context of what's going on at this time. You know, Jesus has been, has been resurrected. Um, he is, he's come. He's, he's appeared to his twelve. He's, he's, he's commissioned them. And then he ascended. And his disciples are charged with spreading the gospel, the good news. And, and it happens in Jerusalem. A lot of it's happening in Jerusalem. People are, in one day, 3,000 people are added to the church. Another day, another 1,000 are added. Every day, the Holy Spirit is adding more and more people to the church in Jerusalem. Now, if there is good news, there's obviously got to be bad news. Remember, every, every force has an equal and opposite force against it. See, the bad news is that we have sin in our lives. We are born with it. We inherited, from, inherited it from Adam. Not that one. Adam, first Adam. And we are separated from God. Sin separates us from our Creator. And nothing we do will bridge that gap. We cannot be good enough. We can't do enough good things. It will not change the fact that we are sinners. We can't save ourselves. But hope is not Loss, because God sent Christ, His Son, to die for us. Somebody, there had to be in order for there to be the forgiveness of sin. Blood must be shed. That is the law. And God wants to keep His law, so He sent His Son to die for us. It's called it's called substitutionary atonement. That's the theological term. But it was Christ died in our place. He took upon the world on the on, the, on Him the sins of the world and died as the perfect sacrifice, no sin. And Jesus accomplished everything that he was sent to do while he was here on this earth. And now it's going to be up to his followers to continue the work that he started. So starting on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit mobilized the church, 3,000 people are added, like I said, and they move forward, more and more people turning to Christ. And this got the attention of the Jewish leaders. And resistance began for every force, there's an equal and opposite force pushing back on it. Now from the start, there has always been resistance to the gospel, just as there is today. Jesus' own followers, Judas especially, struggled with the idea of Jesus and the need for salvation, so much so that he he forced tried to force Christ to be confronted by the Pharisees, <laughs> not for good reason. He was a thief. He sold Christ out, literally. But now a more direct and evil resistance would be perpetuated upon the church by the very people that had crucified Christ to begin with. The leaders hired Saul of Tarsus. If we go to the book of Acts, chapter 8, this gives us an idea of what was happening during this time with Paul, or Saul. He will become Paul, but Saul. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. So what Saul was doing, Saul had letters from the Jewish leaders that allowed him to go and arrest people and put them in jail. Now he had been trained as a Pharisee under the great teacher Gamaliel. He was probably, you know, when, when at that time if you wanted to you wanted to be taught, you would seek out a teacher. That's why it's kind of odd that Jesus sought out his disciples. At that time, the rabbis would wait for people to come to him. So there were certain ranks of rabbis, and Gamaliel was at the top. If you wanted to really learn what it was like and learn learn the Torah, you went to him, if you could even get in. And Paul was one of his disciples, or Saul was one of his disciples. And he was on fire for Jewish nationalism. He He wanted to put a stop to anything that was against Judaism. He was a patriot, zealous for Judaism to the point that he was willing to seek out and kill and destroy all who professed something other than the God of Israel. So he looks at, they looked at this new, at this time was considered a sect of Judaism, and he wanted to destroy it because it was claiming that Jesus was the Messiah. And had risen from the grave, which was impossible in the minds of the Jews to even happen. So here's what Paul says in his own words at the end of chapter 26. Or in chapter 26, about the middle of it, he says, I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. Paul is talking to King Agrippa, giving, telling him what he has done. He says, and I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, But when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. He literally cast his vote that that person should die. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme, which is to speak words against God. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. See, this time, if you were a Christian, you were still going to the synagogue. This is mostly Jewish people that had become Christian at this point and you would still be allowed in the synagogue. Just as a a side note, um, the Romans didn't start persecuting the church until the Jews kicked the Christians out of the synagogue. At that point in time, they're just any other religion, religion, and they can persecute them all they want. They had a special agreement with the Jews that they could keep their God as long as they kept the law, the Roman law. So Paul is even going to foreign cities to persecute to drag people out of their homes and out of the synagogue, have them arrested, and then vote to have them killed. He was filled with rage. And he was on his way to Damascus to arrest and destroy the church there. Verse 9, 1-2 says, But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues of Damascus, so that that if he found any belonging to the way, as it was called at that time, because remember, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, so he was called the way. Men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. That was how he started his day that day. Have you ever had those days where you start out and you have all the plans all laid out in front of you? And you think, this is exactly how my day is going to work out. And along the way, you have a hiccup. And the day doesn't end up anything like you think it should. It's going to end up in a way that Paul never imagined. This day would change his life and would change the lives of Christians for more than 20 centuries. And this is what happens. In verse 3, it says, Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul. Why are you persecuting me? Paul's, he's enraged. Could you imagine what he is thinking as he begins this trip on the road to Damascus? He's probably plotting of where he's going to go and, and who he's going to look for. What he's going to do once he finds him. How is he going to do it? What if he gets resistance? What's he going to, how is he going to handle that? He believes he's going to Damascus doing the work of God. And then he's confronted by Jesus. He's knocked to the ground by the glory of the resurrected Christ. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine seeing the glory of Christ as a bright light, so bright that you are are thrown to the ground? In all his zeal, in all his training, he had never experienced something like this. See, it's Jesus who seeks out the lost. You know, Scripture tells us that we can can find Christ. Anybody who searches for Him, who searches for Him with their whole heart, will find Him. But understand, He is also seeking us. He's also looking for us. And Saul is lost. The road he's on, he thinks he's on the road to Damascus, that road is going to lead him to destruction. The very thing Paul thought would bring pleasure to God was the very thing that God hated. He wasn't doing anything that was pleasing to God. And he's pushing God further and further away and he's walking further and further away from Yahweh. That's a danger for us today. We need, we, we need to be careful of what we do because we think we're doing the right thing when in reality we're doing the exact opposite of what God wants us to do. That's why it tells us to test the spirits. God, He's got, he's got his big boy pants on. He can, take some, he can take some questioning. Just do it without disrespecting him. This is the first time that This is not the first time that Jesus tried to get Saul's attention. You know, we we read Scripture and we don't realize that there were other times. Because if we go to um, chapter 14, or verse 14 in chapter 26 of Acts. It says, and when he had fallen to the ground, this is Paul telling the Scripture of what happened to him. He says, and when we had fallen all to the ground, I heard a voice, so he has other people with him. Saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul adds this part that we don't get at the beginning in Acts. It is hard for you to kick against the goats. Now, isn't that a term that you hear every day? No, it's not. So, what is that? See, this is when you're reading scripture, this is of the person is like. Well, what does that mean? It is hard for you to kick against the goats. Well, the term kick against the goads" refers to these stakes that they would put when they were plowing with a donkey or with the oxen. And they'd put these stakes right behind where the the oxen and the the donkey were pulling because, I don't know about you, but donkeys are kind of cantankerous. And oxen aren't much better. And if you're back there and you're a farmer and they kick you, it's going to hurt. In fact, it could probably kill you if they kick you enough. So they would put these stakes behind so as the donkeys would kick back, they'd be hurt. Instead of the farmer. So God has been putting God, Jesus was putting goads in Paul's life or Saul's life. He, just explain Saul and Paul. Saul was his was probably his Hebrew name. Paul is what his name is in Greek. You'll find that a lot in Scripture. So if I say Paul, it's because I'm thinking about him after his after he, he began following Christ. So God, Jesus is saying, it's hard to kick against those things. God was putting spikes, putting putting things in his life that was trying to get Paul's attention. You know, don't kick against me because you're going to be the one hurt. God does that to us today. He, he subtly, he tries to get us to look towards him. And what do we do? We kick the goad. We get hurt. And we don't remember because what do we do the next time? We kick him again. It's hard. You to kick against the goads. See, the problem is, is if we if we if we ignore God long enough, he may do something pretty drastic, as he's doing here with Saul. He's blind he's blinding him with light. He falls to the ground. He wants us to listen to him. When Jesus is pursuing us, he always pursues us with truth and love. Here's my gospel, and and I love you. And what do we do? We ignore it. We push against it. So he gets a little more forceful. I ask my kids to do something. I'm pretty nice that first time. What if they don't do it? I get a little harder. And a little harder. They talk back to their mother. She gets after them. They do it again. I get after him, and I'm pretty rough vocally. <laughs> you don't talk to your mother that way, right? Thank goodness I never heard that in my life. You know, I heard that many times in my life. You have to be a little more forceful. So God is, Jesus is being forceful with Paul, trying to get his attention. But like Saul, we sometimes we fight God tooth and nail, but in the end, God always wins. The Apostle John wrote in 637 that all the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me will never be cast out. This is Christ speaking. He's always going to win. The Father's always going to bring people to Christ and in Christ they're not going to be left. They're always going to be with him. So he was why did he do this? Why is God, is Jesus doing this to Paul or Saul? Why is he blinding him? Because he needs to be convicted of his sin. We all are guilty of sin. And we need to be convicted of our sins. It's, it's not fun to see our sins. I don't enjoy seeing my sins. But we need to own up to them. We need to stand before the judgment seat of God and realize that we are guilty. Saul needed to be crushed so he could be rebuilt. He he had dramatically shown that he was a sinner. In his own words, he'll say he's the greatest sinner of all. His whole life had been focused on salvation through his own abilities. He thought he was doing something good for God, and that was going to lead him to salvation. He didn't think that he needed a Savior, but he was wrong. So what has to happen is Jesus had to destroy his self-righteousness. Again, verse 4 and 5. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. I mean, could you imagine what's going through Paul's, Saul's mind when he hears those, Jesus say that? I mean, he hears him say, Why are you persecuting me? And, and Saul asked him, Who are you, Lord? And he says, I am Jesus. Could you imagine what he's thinking? He thought he was was doing the work of God and that the enemy was just an idea that this man that was on a cross did not rise from the dead. There's no possibility of him rising from the dead. All those stories we heard about Lazarus, that was just just hype. Fake news. In Paul's eyes, in Saul's eyes. An idea, a philosophy. And it needed to be stamped out. I mean, these were Jews who were believing this. Now, come on. Come on. God's chosen people. We only have one God. We still only have one God. <laughs> but now he sees the glory of Jesus Christ shining completely all around him. And it conquered all of his self righteous rage and moved his heart. See, Paul was not persecuting an idea. He was persecuting God himself. Because what does he say? He says, who are you, Lord? And that word, Lord, it's very sacred to the Jews. They very seldom use it only when they're speaking of God, of Yahweh. There's only one God. So in instance, Paul realizes that he's persecuting God himself. And then he hears the words that crushed him. I am Jesus. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is risen. All the things that Saul was against were true. So Paul stands up, but there's a problem. Says so Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him to Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Interesting that it was three days. You'll find throughout Scripture there's a lot of three days. God is God is great in doing symbols using numbers to teach us lessons. So Paul's fasting for three days. He's not eating or drinking. He was probably also praying. And we also know that he was receiving a vision. And Paul would have other visions in his life. We find out in Galatians that Paul had visions where Jesus began teaching him the Gospel. In Galatians 1.12 it says, For I did not receive it from man." Paul did not learn the Gospel from any human man. He says, but I received it through the revelation of Jesus Christ. He he learned directly from Christ the gospel. Which is why we call Paul an apostle. Because that was one of the rules of the apostles. You had to see the resurrected Christ. You had to learn from him. I mean, can you imagine what those visions would be like? Paul would be thinking one way and he'd hear that. I was like, oh, oh. So Lazarus did rise from the grave. You rose him, but he died. He's going to die again. Yeah, he's going to die again. Oh, okay. I mean, because the, the the amount of information that he's getting, and the the fact that he's able to actually experience and learn who Jesus is directly from Christ, and then he learns what his mission is going to be. But in, instead of seeing just the glory of Yahweh, he sees the glory of Yahweh shining through his son. Through Jesus. And it was because of these visions and what God had done through Saul that in his life he was able to say that it is good that we should taste and see how the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. But before he can move forward in Christ, Jesus is going to have to work with him a little bit. He's going to use a disciple who is in Damascus to move Saul along the way and to be an instrument for, to be an instrument for spreading the gospel. But this, this disciple is, is a little hesitant. Who wouldn't be? Saul's been trying to kill people. In verse 10, he says, Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord, and the Lord said to him, rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. And he has seen a vision. in a vision a man called Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. So Paul had a vision of a man named Ananias coming, laying his hands on him, and he receives his sight back. But Ananias answered, Lord, I've heard from the, about this man. I've heard from many people about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. He's a little scared. Saul has the ability to arrest him and have him killed. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying down his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me to so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. He immediately something like, immediately, something like scales, fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized. Saul would later go on, and we, from that point on, we hear him being called Paul, because that's his Greek name. He's going to the Gentiles, who are mostly Greek. And he becomes an apostle to the Gentiles. He would suffer. He would die, ultimately, for his faith in a Jewish sect that he had originally swore to destroy Those are being Christian and Tom. He's going to suffer much for the faith. Shipwrecked, beaten, stoned. Ultimately, tradition has it that his head was chopped off in, um, in Rome. But in the process, he's going to preach throughout the Roman Empire and into the city of Rome itself. He will be viciously opposed by the Jewish leaders, the very people that he worked for. Not to mention, he's going to write a book to the a letter to the church in Rome and many other letters to other churches. He's going to be a catalyst for hundreds of millions of people coming to Christ. This man who who was a murderer who was seeking out people who believed in Christ and he was going to have them thrown in jail and killed, became a man who would share the gospel with many and change the world. I don't think he fully understood the effect he was going to have. He always remained humble through all of it. His letters to these churches would change the world Augustine, Luther, Calvin, Whitfield, and many others would, would look at the book of Romans and it would change their lives, not to mention all their other writings. And it all started with an encounter with the resurrected Jesus that led to a transformed life that transformed the world. Saul was convicted. Confronted, convicted, commissioned, and ultimately consumed by the resurrection of Christ. How about you? Have you been confronted? Has Jesus confronted? And believe me, <laughs> once you once you believe in Christ, you, the conf- confrontation continues because we are human, we're sinners, and we slip, we fall, we make mistakes, and God confronts us again and again. Hopefully, not for the same sin because that's a problem. Are you convicted? Moses would say, we were converted. But are we living like we are... Or are we just playing lip service to it? Are you living your life on mission? Are you called... Your mission is, to be, is called to be a witness for Jesus Christ, supposed to be ready in and out of season to share why we have our faith. Are you living that way? Are you living the way so that people can actually see it and want to know the question answer? They ask you those questions. Why are you... What's different about you? See, see, just as Paul and Saul was actually called on mission for Christ, you and I are called to be on mission for Christ. To declare before the world that we are believers in the Son of God who died and rose from the grave. And He is Lord of our lives. Are you ready to proclaim it? Today I get the privilege and the joy of experiencing two men who have declared that they wish to live on mission for Christ. And they want to publicly declare their faith in Jesus Christ.